Thank you, Ms. Williams. I was honored to be asked to introduce Charles, although I have to admit uh, when Emily called, I tried my best to get out of it because I felt like I could talk for the whole hour on all of Charles's accomplishments, so I certainly will not do that to you because I know you're here to hear him talk. But Charles is currently the development officer for Holston Conference Camp and Retreat Ministries with Holston Methodist Conference. And he and his wife, his beautiful wife Janice, who's back there, also a very accomplished author, I might add, uh, have two beautiful daughters, Caroline and Anna, and they live in Jonesboro. I know Charles from my work, which is with Discover Life in America. He's our new board of directors chairperson, and we're thrilled to have him. He has uh, so many books. I, I Googled his books, and the list was so long, I'm, I'm certainly not going to try to go over that. I'll let him talk about that a little bit. But he has a brand-new book he just told me was nominated for a national award, which is Blue Ridge Ancient and Majestic, which you should all go out and get. I've seen the pictures, and it's, it's absolutely a beautiful book. And as you know, Charles, very well written. Charles is known for a thousand different things, as I just said, one being the founder and first director of Friends of the Smokies. I can't think of a better person to, to, have to be able to work with and to, to help us with our organization. So I don't want to talk too long. I'm going to say welcome, Charles Maynard, and uh, we look forward to hearing your talk. Good afternoon. I'm glad to get to be here uh, with you and to, and to talk about a fascinating book, Earth, by Bill McKibben. McKibben wrote a book that I had read years ago called The End of Nature, in which uh, he tried to wake us up uh, and get us to thinking ahead. Uh, this book basically is saying... He doesn't say it in these words, but this book basically says, well, since you didn't listen to me 20 years ago, here's where we are now. And uh, the, the reason for the title of spelling earth uh, with an extra A is he, his premise is that we no longer live on the planet that civilization has existed in, that, that the planet that once was here we have altered in such a way that it is no longer the same place. And because of that, we've got to start thinking of um, much different solutions, that old solutions no longer apply because the old solutions applied to the old earth. But that since things have been altered enough, it's going to require new ways of thinking, new types, uh, new models, new uh, ways of, of going about it. And the book, the book is in, um, it's fascinating, but what I found interesting is that last week, I don't know which part of the paper you read first, but last week when I was reading the comics, <laughs> Beetle Bailey, okay, Beetle Bailey the, the general, the chaplain, and the major are sitting at a bar. And the general says, I heard today that by the year 2050, 9 billion people will inhibit the earth. <laughs> the major says, ha ha, you mean inhabit. And the chaplain says, actually, you're both right. Okay, now Beetle Bailey is making a comment about this, which just fascinated me. 
that uh, even the comic strips are saying something about this. But what McKibben does in this book is he spends, there are only four chapters in this book. The first two, the first half of the book is basically making the case, saying here's where we are. This is what this new planet looks like. And then he spends the second half saying, and now here's how we need to learn how to live on it. Just to give you a quick summary of one of of the ideas from the early part of the book, he says, so let's review. Now he's trying to tell you this is the new planet we're living on. The planet we live on has a finite number of huge physical features. Virtually all of them seem to be changing rapidly. The Arctic ice cap is melting. The great glacier above Greenland is thinning, both with disconcerting and unexpected speed. The oceans, which cover three-fourths of the Earth's surface, are distinctly more acidic, and their level is slowly rising. They're also warmer, which means the greatest storms on our planet, hurricanes and cyclones, have become more powerful. The vast inland glaciers in the Andes, Himalayas, and the giant snowpack of the American West are melting very fast, and within decades, the supply of water to the billions of people living downstream will dwindle. The great rainforest of the Amazon is drying on its margins and threatened at its core. The great boreal forest of North America is dying in a matter of years. The storehouses of oil beneath the Earth's crust are now more empty than they were full. Every one of these things is completely unprecedented in the 10,000 years of human civilization. Some places with civilizations that date back thousands of years, the Maldives in the Indian Ocean, Kiribati in the Pacific, and other island nations are actively preparing to lower their flags and evacuate their territory. The cedars of Lebanon, you can read about them in the Bible, are now listed as heavily threatened. We have traveled to a new planet propelled by a burst of carbon dioxide. That new planet, as is often the case in science fiction, looks more or less like our own, but clearly is not. I know that I'm repeating myself. I'm repeating myself on purpose. This is the biggest thing that has ever happened. And so he, he goes on from there to talk, uh, like I say, about this uh, particular thing. The thing that I find interesting is that he continues to use the term interchangeably. He uses the term global warming with climate change. Now, see, it seems to me it's difficult to talk about global warming, especially on a day like today. You know, when we're expecting this snow event and all that, and we've had more snow uh, this winter than we have in many, many years. And we all have memories of winters just a few years ago that we hardly had a winter. And now we have a winter like the one we're having now. The reason I'm saying global warming, I think sometimes is that people end up arguing over the term global warming, Uh, Years ago, I was involved with the National Park Service, and we were working on overflights, commercial overflights of national parks. And the National Park Service had started uh, talking about natural quiet. Well, the answer to that from the other side of the table was, what is the decibel level of natural quiet? When is it quiet? 
Well, see, then they began arguing about decibel levels. When what the National Park Service really was talking about was natural sounds. Because you see, nature is not quiet. Uh, and, and what we were trying to talk about was the interruption of the natural sounds. And uh, the best example that came up in this discussion, and we were, we were sitting at a table arguing back and forth, and finally somebody said, you just don't get what we're talking about. We're talking about the interruption of an experience. And uh, the guy across the table said, well, I have no idea what you mean. And he said, okay, let's say you go to the symphony and you listen to, you're listening to Beethoven's Ninth, and it's that wonderful Ode to Joy section of it there at the end. And suddenly the conductor puts her baton down, walks off, goes to the restroom, comes back, picks up the baton, and continues conducting exactly where she left off. You would have heard the entire piece, every note of it, but it wouldn't be the same experience. And where I'm going with this analogy is that global warming, we end up talking about how warm is global warming. It doesn't seem very warm to me when what McKibben's really talking about is climate change, which is a very different feature that in some places there is going to be more snow. In some places there is going to be more rain. And, and uh, the, the great example he gives is in the Amazon rainforest. You see, the way the rainforest works is it's a hydraulic pump, okay? The prevailing winds there in South America are east to west. So the moisture comes from the Atlantic and rains into the rainforest, which quickly vaporizes it, evaporates it, <laughs> back into the air where the prevailing winds push it farther west where it rains a second time again the forest because it see very little of that soaks very deep in because most of it's hitting leaves which are respirated and again the moisture is put back into the air it's evaporated a second time and pushed farther west. So see, what happens is that the rainfall that falls the first time in the east, that same moisture will fall five times before it hits the Andes. And then is captured as snow, which is melted in the next season to flow back down. And so that the, so that the Amazon truly starts at the Andes. Well, as the rainforest is removed the moisture will no longer be put back into the air quickly. It will soak in and run off. And so instead of the, the rain being pumped farther and farther west, it will fall east and go back out to the ocean, come back, fall east, and go back out to the ocean. So you see, by altering the forest, you alter the climate of that region. And I just thought that was a really good example of his and a, and a fascinating idea. You see, it's not that more, it's the same amount of moisture either way. It's how the moisture is redistributed that makes the difference. And so as the forest changes, that redistribution changes. And so those are the types of things uh, he talks about. The other point he makes that I think is very good is as the temperature 
of the atmosphere rises, even by a degree, one degree centigrade, that changes the amount of moisture in the air because warmer air holds more moisture. Even a degree centigrade warmer holds slightly more moisture, which means it can hold moisture longer, more moisture, so that when it hits a cool place, more rain falls. So see, it's, it's not that the, air, that the water is disappearing, it's that it comes in different concentrations. Storms become heavier, floods become more severe because more is raining down, more is happening uh, in there. And you say, well, gee, one degree centigrade, how big a deal is that? Well, let's, let's use today as an example, okay? One degree centigrade, 2.3 degrees Fahrenheit, so do you want it to be 31 degrees today or do you want it to be 33 degrees today? It's, it's all the difference in what your drive home's going to be like. See, so we say, oh, well, it's just one degree. Well, okay, but it depends on where you're standing as to how important that one degree is. But, but I, I don't want to make his case as much as I want to to, to let you hear and, and let us talk about some of his solutions. Uh, he does spend half the book talking about solutions. One of the points that he made that, that made perfect sense to me and, but startled me was that he said our economy, unlike any that came before it, is designed to work without the input of your neighbor. See, your neighbor doesn't grow the food that you eat. Your neighbor, you know, you, you don't have to interact with anybody that lives on either side of you unless you want to. And so he was saying the economy is built on that premise now, that we no longer have to interact with our neighbors, that, that in fact uh, it works, our lives, it works best sometimes when we don't interact with our neighbors and don't have to fool uh, with those pesky people down, down the way. And so he begins to offer several solutions, several ideas. He says, we have got to learn to grow our food differently and move to smaller farms. Research is starting to show that smaller farms have a bigger per acre yield than larger farms do because smaller farms grow more than one thing in a field. I mean, I, I knew a fella in Virginia that, you know, he always grew his green beans in with his corn. And the green beans climbed up the corn stalk. So you see, uh, th there were two things, plus the green beans did something to the soil that the corn didn't do. And so it was all happening in the same place. Smaller farmers have that wisdom and the idea. And so smaller farmers can be, smaller farms can be more productive in that than as opposed to a mega farm that produces only wheat, only corn, that type of things. The estimate is that, that your food requires 400 gallons of fossil fuels a year. And that's not counting refrigeration, transportation, and cooking it. That's just counting producing it. Your food, 
my food, 400 gallons for me uh, a year. And, that, and then you've got to get it to me, and then I've got to cook it. So that's other fossil fuel that's used in that. So it's, it's huge. The second thing he said is we need to eat differently. In 1960, which happened to be the year he was born, so that's why he was using that marker, the annual consumption of meat, the average annual consumption of meat for Americans was 116 pounds a year. In the year 2010, the annual consumption of meat, the average, is 187 pounds per year. So you can see that we're eating quite differently, but, but in a situation where, you see, meat is very, very expensive to produce because it takes grain, and grain takes fossil fuels. Uh, and so the more meat you consume, the more grain that requires, the more fossil fuel that requires to produce that. So he's saying we have to learn to eat differently. And it's not just meat, but that was just one of his points that I, that I thought was interesting. And then, of course, the third thing, the one that, that's the, the elephant in the room, is that we have to switch away from fossil fuels. That we have to come to a point where we um, move our power grid, where we move our way of moving around, things like that, off of fossil fuels because, as he said, there are now... That, the, that there is less fossil fuel, you know, before we had full tanks, now we're running on a quarter of a tank, that, it, that we've drawn down enough on that. And the idea is, sure, you can drive a hybrid vehicle, but nobody's invented a hybrid jet yet, okay? In other words, there are some things that we're going to continue to need fossil fuels to do. So are we willing to give up using jets in order to drive to work by ourselves, you know, it's going to be a trade. It's a finite amount. And so he talks about that. He says that to get off of fossil fuels to make a difference in the amount of carbon dioxide in the air and to make the supply last, we need to cut our fuel consumption by a factor of 20 in the next two decades. That's pretty radical. Uh, but it, it, that, that's the kind of thing he was talking about. It, the idea is to replace fossil fuels with other sources, whether that's solar, wind, whatever, to use another kind of source for this. The other thing he makes the point is we don't really need to consume as much energy as we do. And so conservation becomes a key part of any any plan of sustenance into the future is learning to conserve, um, learning to live without certain things or, or to live at a different kind of level with types of things. But we're talking about more than replacing light bulbs with different kinds of light bulbs, although that's, that's an important step. But we're talking about how do we uh, start using the, um, the roof the roofs of uh, government buildings to produce electricity for the government building? How do we take areas that are already covered over with buildings and, and change that over and, and make something different out of it? So 
he said to switch away from fossil fuels, one thing is conservation. But the second thing, which I thought was fascinating, is he says we've got to have, and he used the quote, an uptick of neighboring. That, that we have got to learn to live with our neighbors, truly not live by our neighbors, but live with our neighbors. And again, a few examples, but he talked about, you know, have you, have you actually taken a poll in your neighborhood to find out where everybody live, where everybody works so that maybe you could share a ride some of the days of the week? Uh, and, and, of course, he, he used examples, neighborhood gardens, uh, other kinds of neighborhood exchanges, farmers markets that are certainly on the rise in the United States right now, growing at roughly 10% a year. So, see, that's a very good sign and was talking about uh, that type of thing. There's one uh, thing on the web called Front Porch Forum. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but the Front Porch Forum started, a fellow in Vermont was trying to get his, his neighborhood to, to do things together, and he couldn't get anybody to do anything. He put up lots of signs. He put up all kinds of things. Nobody responded. He started sending emails and, and it changed things. And then people began to exchange information and, uh, and said, oh, well, look, I've got this and that. And, and a great story that he told is he said uh, that a woman wanted, to, that her daughter wanted to go on a canoe trip for her birthday party and wanted to take her friends on, this, on a canoe trip. So the mother checked into it. It was going to be very expensive to rent six canoes. So she put it in the, the front porch forum. I'm looking for some canoes to borrow on this date. And he said by sundown, she had a, a whole pile of canoes in her front yard. People <laughs> just came, oh, I got one. Yeah, here, take, take it. You can borrow it for a few weeks. So, so I mean, that's a funny example. But it, it was, he was saying, you know, here's a way that we can get in touch with each other. We should be using uh, email. We should be using the web. To, to build networks uh, of people in all kinds of different ways. Um, and he said that one thing we've got to do is focus the economy not so much on growth, but on maintenance. I mean, you can have a healthy economy uh, without it uh, growing so much percent per year, but he's saying, you know, that model is no longer going to be viable on this new planet uh, that we're living on. He said, we can no longer afford to ignore our neighbors. They'll be the key to our survival. His last point, which I thought was a good one, is he said, we've got to learn to live lightly, carefully, gracefully. So it's a fascinating look. He gives some very practical solutions. McKibben's way of writing he tends to throw a lot of facts at you, but always anecdotally. And so he'll give you uh, the facts of how many parts per million the carbon dioxide is in the current atmosphere, but then he gives you anecdotal evidence and stories along with it. So I would encourage you to read his book. Go online, uh, 350.org. Uh, 350 parts per million is what 
uh, is survivable with carbon dioxide. Uh, when I was born, uh, back in the last century, uh, the, uh, the year, the, the, in the time period I was born, the, uh, the Earth's atmosphere had 275 parts per million of carbon dioxide, of carbon. We're already over the 350 mark now. Now, this isn't, you know, like, I, again, you can argue about whether we're getting warmer or not. This is just a measurement of the air. This is how many parts per million it is. But, but, the, but the line appears to be somewhere around 350. And we're already, we've already tipped over that. And so, again, his argument is we've got to get back to 350 and below to be truly in a, in a situation that will not be wreak havoc with the climates, uh, which we all live in. This isn't going to be just a problem that the rainforest has or that the de desert in Africa has. It's going to be a problem that we're all going to be dealing with. Now, I can go on and on. I get quite excited about this kind of thing. But uh, are there comments you have, uh, questions, thoughts? Uh, can we talk at all about the situation in Delta County, like, well, China, or in particular? Yes, he does. He addresses that cause, because... You know, we're considered a developed nation, and China and India are developing countries. And, and what's interesting, he gives examples in both ways, because you see what is happening is that we're telling, well, let me give you a, a Brazil example. We're telling Brazil, don't cut down the rainforest after we have harvested everything here. Now, we've grown a lot of it back, but, but to get where we were, we practically, I mean, look at pictures of the Smokies from the 1920s and 30s. There were no trees. I mean, 80% of what is now the park was logged, was cleared, clear-cut. So, see, the argument that we, we say, oh, no, no, don't do that, when everybody knows American history well enough to know how we got where we are. Well, that must be the way... We've got to do it. And so what he's saying is that one of the problems is so many people are trying to emulate the American model that that just is making things worse. But China, India, some other places are also finding some creative solutions to get more creative solutions to get there than we did in our history. And so he gave examples in both ways, that there's a rush, there's a great deal of carbon dioxide being poured in because of, of the, the demand for power, for electricity in particular, but that there are some other solar, uh, wind-powered, some, some biomass kind of fuel types of solutions that China, that some people in China are figuring out. Also, the idea, what they're finding is that as it's more and more difficult to generate electricity, as fuel becomes more expensive, people are slowly moving away from the cities in China and India back. See, they'd left their family farms and moved into the cities. That's where the jobs were and everything. But you see, it's becoming... We used to get cheap goods from China, but now the fuel costs have risen to the point that not everything can be outsourced and it'd be cheaper. And so because of that, jobs are falling in some of these larger cities. And so the solutions, which he argues, is, are on, in smaller neighborhoods. Uh, the, the fight, if you all remember, Sunquist changed the, the, the way 
there was an executive order that went through to change the way um, air quality permits were issued. And it, it lessened uh, the input that the National Park Service and others were, were able to give on permits that were being this. And this was years ago. And uh, many of us argued that that was the wrong thing to do. At that time, my office was across the street from the Sevier County Courthouse. I made an appointment with uh, Larry Waters, the county executive, we call him county mayors now, uh, of Sevier County. And I said, you really need to be upset about this. And he said, look, Charles, it's a, it's a, con it's a conversation about environment versus business. And what I said was, no, it's a conversation about the business of Sevier County, which is tourism, against other kinds of business. And he said, what do you mean? And I put down the Atlanta Constitution that had run that Sunday that said the air in the Great Smoky Mountains is worse to breathe than the air in Atlanta. <laughs> now, why do you want to go on a vacation from Atlanta when you can breathe better air at home? You know? It's pitting one kind of, of business against another kind of business. And so we frame the conversation economically instead of um, environment versus business. And in the end, Sunquist changed the rule because it, it was an executive order. It wasn't a legislator thing. He changed the rule and made it tougher. It made it more input on these permits than less. But it's because we finally changed the conversation and we based it economically and not it's the right thing to do. It's what we ought to be doing. It is, but that's not how the discussion can go. I mean, McKip, it's fascinating. He argues that we really need to, to cut back on government. Uh, and he's not just talking about United States government. He's talking about government just all over the globe, that, that there are so many layers of government that it takes a great deal of resources to, to keep that going and that uh, bigger is not always better. And, and that's always been the mantra in the United States is bigger is better. And he's saying sometimes we're going to have to, we're going to, have to scale back on some of that. He's not so much arguing that the government shouldn't regulate, but he's arguing about how that should be done, that kind of thing. <laughs> well, he, he, makes out, he makes the point that, well, gee, I told you about this in 1989. And it didn't really make much difference. So I, I think. Well, I think he's trying to be hopeful. He's using, he, he keeps using examples of places that are making changes that are making a difference. And he's, he lives in Vermont. And so he's using some local examples from Vermont that are, that are good examples. Uh, but, but I think. You know, it's going to be one of those things. It's going to be, it's our decision at this point. You know, I think what we, are, what we are so used to doing is blaming the large corporate problem. And, and I guess the example I would give is that, and, and many of you know me, and an air quality fight has been something that's been very important to me. But TVA is not the problem. You know, we, we've beat TVA around for years. TVA is not the problem. Uh, some of us have been working on mountaintop removal. And removing mountaintop removal as an option. The corporation that is digging that coal is not the problem. It's my consumption of electricity that's the problem. 
You know, TVA doesn't make electricity for nobody. They make it for me. And I'm not pointing the finger at you. I, you know, I'm talking about the way I consume electricity and fossil fuels. And, and I think, you know, I think it, until we can figure out, and that's one of the things he talks about is how do we convince our neighbors? Which, again, goes back to the idea of neighborhood that he's talking about. How do we convince our neighbors? Well, if you never interact with your neighbors, how do you convince your neighbors this is something we've, that we've got to do? How do we convince our our town, our, our region, that this is something we've got to change. Well, I'll give you an example that, that happened to us years ago. Um, we were, I was at graduate school at Emory in Atlanta. We had very close friends that lived in the same apartment complex as us. And uh, we, we basically ate dinner together every night, nearly every night. Now, it wasn't a it's-your-turn-my-turn kind of thing. It was just something that we just kind of worked out between these two couples. When they graduated and moved away, I still had another year left. The next, and I promise you, our power bill nearly doubled the next year. And I really thought the guy was reading our meter wrong. And, and went down and started copying down the thing. And it, was, it took us a couple of months to figure out we were cooking at home every night. And, and our power consumption went up because we were no longer sharing cooking time. And, and, and it had never occurred. I mean, that was not why we were doing it. That wasn't what it was about. But it was just this weird spinoff thing of, wow, we're paying a lot more for electricity because we're living without neighbors. We're living alone. So, you know, it's much more expensive to run a household like that. So, yeah, you're right. So I think, I think he tries to speak, hopefully. But realistically, he says that, that dropping fossil fuel consumption by a factor of 20 in the next two decades is probably unlikely. But he says that's okay because after that point, you won't have many more choices. So really, I mean, he's saying, he's basically saying, you are making the choice now. It's not a matter of, of will we do it or not. It's just, when will we do it? When, when will we make these choices? Because we'll be forced at some point, it won't be an option any longer. Do you see churches entering into uh, a fostering of environmental responsibility? Well, I, I can... I can speak from my tradition, which is United Methodist tradition, and I know that it is changing and that um, our bishops just gathered uh, in the fall, which many of us argued used a lot of fossil fuel to gather, but <laughs> they acknowledged that fact and even talked about learning how to meet differently as the bishops of the church. But the... the, the uh, letter to congregations that came out of that gathering was on this issue is to say this is this is one of the most important things we're going to have to pay attention to as as a, a church and so i'm seeing it changing in other traditions too of focusing more and more on that because you're right that's a group of that local churches are neighborhoods that people interact in now uh, it's not the same kind of neighborhood that we're talking about physically, but, but yeah, you're right. There's that. 
Well, yeah, did everybody hear? The, the question is, what suggestions did McKibben make to, to talk to people, to, to convince them? And, and I, think, I, I think, again, I guess I don't know that he says this, but I would say, you know, the thing that, that fascinates me is we try to convince people um, that the earth is warming up instead of simply saying, look, why don't you ride to work with me? In other words, we try to convince them of this thing that's out there. Well, then the discussion gets focused on whether or not that's going to happen. When, in fact, what we need to be talking about is here's a way of life that lives lightly here and and is more uh, sustainable and, in the end, more productive. See, we're all about being productive. But ultimately, if you kill the goose that lays the golden egg, then you're done. And so that's, that's kind of the idea. So he doesn't give a lot, he doesn't go that direction with a lot of this, not of how to talk. I think he tries to focus on here are some practical things to do of how to organize. He talked about one time they were trying to convince legislatures in Vermont to do something. And they decided that they would have a walk across Vermont and end up at the state capitol. And then they got to calculating the carbon footprint of what, even though they were going to be walking, but you know, they were, what they were going to do, they ended up having uh, a, basically a rally through the internet and, and reached many more people than they would have convinced to leave and walk with them to actually do something. And in the end, the legislators listened a little differently because there were a lot more people involved in that effort than if 100 people had showed up on the state capitol steps. But then they also used that Internet connection to get people to events that needed physical presence. Those that have uh, talked about, you know, how do you get political support, how do you get people to change, uh, at the local level, who's closer to you than your local, your, you know, your mayor, your count commissioners, your council people? And we have an election coming up, and there will be tons of forums, and there are five mayoral candidates, and there will be multiple city council candidates. And I think at every forum, there should be a question, what will you as city council member or as a mayor do to make our city yeah. more sustainable? How will you reduce our consumption? How, you know, And I think that's a very legitimate question. And to build political will to do anything, you have to show that there's community will, yeah. you know? And so some of us, we will speak out about this, but you need but to show that the there is support in the community. So I just encourage yeah. you to do that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. Today. Hello, I'm Emily Ellis, reference librarian at Knox County Public Library. To hear podcasts of other programs, visit www.knoxlib.org, that's K-N-O-X-L-I-B dot O-R-G, and follow the link to the Brown Bag Green Book webpage.